Hello and welcome to The Evocative Project. My name's Blake Bradford and I'm so happy to have you here today. The Evocative Project is all about building confidence from within, about having and knowing your why. Why you're doing what you're doing and with this project through my stories, co-hosts and guests, we're going to teach you the skills that you need to take on life and fulfill it with purpose. Hey guys, it's your boy B from Evocative and thank you so, so much for jumping on another episode of the Evocative Project. When I talk to you about avoiding pain, seeking pleasure, finding the path of least resistance, what do you think about? Well, Luke Mathers unravels the importance of those three things and how they are humans, three main motivators. He also talks about resetting our emotional ability, talks about finding a place where your mind is open to change and it's a liminal space. You may have heard of subliminal previously. Well, Luke dives into the level above, which is liminal space. And it's where you're able to open to new ideas within your thinking. It'll allow you to think and implement and make changes in your life and everything that you do. We talk about many things um, about stress, Teflon, and how the best people in business are the people that can absorb stress and use it to their advantage. We talk about eye goals, which is foundational way of Luke's tip on finding your why. And there's a there's a great conversations in there about anxiety and how it's more a feeling opposed to a personality. There's things in there about depression and Luke's history with uh, cannabis and also his mental state that really pivoted his whole life um, from from early 20s from his early 20s and I'm really excited to dive into all these things today Luke he's, he's a mentor of mine in business and in life so I was super humbled and a little bit nervous to have him on this episode but please 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 sit tight grab a pen paper all your phone notes because it is 2021 and we have the technology just oozing at our fingertips and really listen. I've, I've gone back over and listened to this episode twice already and I'm taking more and more notes in that process and I'm, I feel like I've become a better person just from listening to this episode. So I hope you can as well. And please be sure to, you know, leave a comment or, send us an email about what you learn or what you think about our project as a whole, but also, and certainly to the point on this episode with Luke Mathers. So without any more introduction, let's dive in to another episode of The Evocative Project. Shoo. All 
Alrighty, Lukey, Lukey Mathers. Thank you so much, my friend, for jumping on the evocative project today. Um, I know your time is super valuable and I'd certainly value your time and I'm very humbled to have you as a guest on the evocative project today, sharing your incredible insight on stress, curious habits, um, the power of emotion and controlling your thoughts and those sorts of things. And and I've only known you for a short while, which seems how I enter most of these um, conversations on here. Um, but you've you've made a massive impact in my life already, uh, certainly with evocative and on a personal level as well. And so grateful to have met you and have that connection already. And um, yeah, really excited to have you on the Evocative Project to really show some some big insight onto your your big beliefs around stress and your your mental processes in helping people deal with it and and use it to their advantage. Good stuff, mate. Yeah, it's great to be here. And, and thank you very much for for taking the time and bring me on. It, it, it's great. I actually have a really cool memory of the first night that we met. Um, I don't know if you remember that the Maddie Palmer's Mind Pack event at uh, the Mob Academy. And yeah. here I go, I, I meet this bloke that did a little bit of training and then thought it'd be a great idea to run 100Ks. <laughs> and I'm like, you fucking idiot. <laughs> um, but you did it, man. It was um, it was an insane story. And I, I, guess, I, guess, I guess one of the things I talk about a lot is, is that, that working out that your mental limit's a little bit closer than your physical limit. And you pushed the bounds of both of those. You got both of those running neck and neck when you did your 100k run didn't you so yeah. yeah it's um it's amazing the power of that that bit of gray mush that we got between our ears it can actually do some pretty amazing things when you uh when you let it and when you when you really can channel it as well to the things that one you're passionate about or i think we talk about a lot on here your why and when you know your purpose and you you're funneling those energies you can you can push yourself to that next level and that's certainly what i found on the hundred K run was I could like, I found, I found this or cemented my why that day. Like for me, I always wanted, I had an inkling. I wanted to help people. I just wasn't sure how. And through that run, I was really able to grasp on to that. And it was help people get through their dark days help people from your point of view. Did, did you look at that as if I can run a hundred Ks, I can do anything now. Is there an element of that to it with you? Has um, it taken the brakes off the, of what you believe is is possible because you've done something as momentous? Because it is rem- momentous. To run a marathon, I think, is amazing. To run 100Ks is just is beyond crazy. But the, do you feel as if it's taken the brakes off what it, what is possible for you? I would say yes and no. I think coming into the run, I had a pretty strong mindset of if I decide to do something, it'll happen. And I mm-hmm. spoke about it that night, I believe, at Mindpack event was the day I completed that run was the day I signed up to it. Um, and I think it's... Right. Yeah, I think it's like a big trait of mine. I have a massive belief in my ability to, to get shit done. Um, but obviously, yeah, definitely since doing that, I know there's no limit. Like that shattered all yeah, wow. that shattered the glass on doubt or on 
just when you don't when you think it's not possible at an idea or a, a venture or something like that and you can just you can go from the couch like zero to a hundred in 12 weeks you you put it that is that is ludicrous it's ludicrous it's ludicrous yeah. but i think the beauty of what happened to me on that run was what i became in the 12 13 weeks leading up to the run okay the evolution of who i learned to be who i learned i could be through dedication commitment training consistency learning about my body about my mind's control all those sort of things in that 12 week period that allowed me to enjoy the 100k yeah right and you got curious about those things you got curious about why you give up at certain times and you got curious about a lot of that sort of stuff i would yeah i would i was probably more curious in the fact that i didn't want to give up yeah okay and so okay. i think yeah I, I love the way you talk a lot about your whys and all of that sort of stuff. And you, you know, you hear those, you know, those American coaches, you know, and you know, you got to find your why and all of this <laughs> sort of stuff. And there, there's always, I always just get a little bit of vomit in my throat if I have to say stuff like that. Yeah. And you shouldn't because it's just so important, but it, I, I, there's something about it just grates me, but I, I get it. I get it completely. And we all need to know our why. And if you, if you think about from a stress point of view and yeah, you know, I, I spend most of my time talking to people about getting better at stress. If you, if you imagine you've got a stress bucket of what you can handle and knowing your why actually just makes that bucket bigger. I can handle more. If you, if your why is strong enough, you can handle any how. And, um, I think that's super true. So although it, it's really weird that I have this love-hate relationship with the idea of sort of that, you know, I love the Simon Sinek book, Find Your Why and all of that sort of stuff. I, and I love it, but I just hate the connotations of the you've got to find your why. Does that make sense? Yeah, it certainly does. Yeah. I think it's hard to, I, I guess, my my skills that I'm learning is how to articulate the importance of your why. And I think that's a beautiful thing that I've, got out of this project just personally is asking the question of our guests is what's a tip that you would give our audience on how to find your why and through all those little things i've been able to break down how different people interpret what a why is for one but then to their journey to find it and and once they find it what it actually means to them yeah okay Um, so like what i said before was how on that run, I really cemented my why. So I, I knew I wanted to help people. I knew the goal in what I was doing was to, you know, try and help people live a more positive, happier life. But I just wasn't sure why I wanted to do that. And I think on that run was because I had seen people go through pain. I'd seen people suffer. I'd seen people live with heartache and stress as you would talk about and just going through life motions and never feeling really motivated. I felt that on the run, I was motivated the whole time and I used that motivation, which was my why to help people through their shit through Mm -hmm. the boys that were running through their bad moments, through their pain, their struggles and their dark days it's amazing that your why then turns straight away into into how much impact you can have on someone else, how much I can relieve someone else's pain. 
how much I can be there for other people. And that's, that's a massive part of, of, you know, making stress not stick. When, when I go through the foundations of stress Teflon in, in the book and when we do workshops and stuff like that, we need the safety of a tribe. We need the pride from contributing. We need to feel like what we're doing is making a difference. That's massive as well. If we feel like we're banging our head against the wall and nothing's making any difference to anything, then things get really stressful. And you've got to have honest self-awareness. So you've got to have the safety of a tribe, pride from contributing and honest self-awareness. And we have those three. You'll kind of, in the middle of those three, you'll actually find that thing that's that's going to be your why. Yeah. You know what I mean? So part of yours was helping the other guys you were running with. Part of it was the physical challenge of I want to push myself as hard as I can. And the other part was that you need that that pride from saying, yeah, I did this. And pride, pride people can take one of two ways. Some people you know, think pride's a terrible word and it, it's awful. Other, other people think it's great. I'm probably more in the I think it's great thing. I think without feeling good about yourself, you can't really help too many other people. You know, it's a bit like that, you know, when the, when the mask dropped down in, in the – in the plane, yeah, you got to fit your mask before helping anyone else. And if you haven't got pride in yourself and you're not happy being you, it's really, really hard to help help someone else. Yeah, it's a yeah, it's a great perspective to put on it. Um, I yeah, I think about that a little bit because I I hate saying that. I don't know. I don't hate saying I I don't find myself saying I'm proud of myself or I have that sense of pride because i i like to think i'm really quite humble um but then mm-hmm. there's moments where yeah we, we've 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 put a bad connotation on that yeah we've put a bad connotation on actually saying yes well done me that was really good and one of the problems with that is if you want to if you want to instill some sort of habit change you actually have to have a bit of a celebration at the end of it because i'm i can i nerd out a little bit on evolutionary biology I'd love you to. Is that okay? No, Can I nerd yeah, out on that a little bit? Let's, any any uh, listeners, let's if you want to tap in. out for a little while, that's okay. Yeah. But we, we basically have three motivators and we, we have only three motivators. We have primarily and far and away the most important one is to avoid pain. Our, our biological thing is to avoid the thing that, that feels really bad and that we don't like. Yeah. Our second one is to seek pleasure. All right. Um, I get in trouble for this one, but could you imagine if orgasm sound like slamming orgasm felt like slamming your dick in a car door? You're not going to have too much, you know, the species isn't going to last too long. We do things that feel good and nature puts those good feelings in there to make us repeat it again. You know, sweet things have a lot of carbohydrates in it, which when we were, when we were in the cave, caveman and stuff, if we found something sweet and wanted us to eat it more, it gave us a really good feeling about it. It gave us a little dopamine hit saying, yeah, Bring me more of them. Remember where that you know berry berry bush was, and so we we go towards pain. And the last motivation we have, and it again comes from caveman times where we where we didn't have a Seven Eleven on every corner, and food was scarce. Our brains are about three percent of our body weight, and they use twenty percent of our energy. All right, so your brains are really, really intensively. It, it, it really sucks energy out of your system. If you're living in an environment where you don't have a lot of availability of energy, there's not a lot of food around, your brain's got to work out shortcuts to actually do things easier. And that's why we have habits. You know, if you remember, cast your mind back to when you learned to drive a car, you know, which side is the key in, which one's the accelerator, how do I find first gear? 
all of those things, which side's the blinker on, which which blind spot, all of those things you had to think about. You don't think about any of them anymore. So if you get you get out of a car and someone's just had two driving lessons, they get out of the car and they're exhausted. They're sweating. They're really, they're frazzled because they haven't built any of those habits yet. You and I could go for a drive for three hours and we wouldn't even notice. Mm. And that we're biologically designed to avoid pain, seek pleasure and find the path of least resistance to do whatever we can to make things easier. And that's where habits come into it, that we just have habits. And the quicker our brain can turn something from something I have to think about to something that's habitual, the happier our brains are. Yeah. That, it makes it sound so simple, right? Um like, it is. It, it is. But the primary the primary one is we want to avoid pain. Yeah. And to, to be able to do something like like your 100K run, I'm, I keep coming back to that because I'm in awe of the fact that you did it. <laughs> but I keep coming back to that. And there was a whole bunch of things. Everything in that on that day when you probably got past about K30 was telling you to stop. Yeah, your whole body was, my legs sore, my back sore, my shoulders are sore, everything's sore. And that's all of those things are your body telling you to stop. But you have this part of your brain, your prefrontal cortex that says, nah, I'm doing this. I'm determined. I'm going to show how determined I am. And you did it. But that goes against what our biology, your biology was telling you to stop. So your caveman inside you was telling you to stop and preserve your health. I think what's funny when you say that is on that day, I wasn't avoiding pain. I didn't have the pain. It was, I think the pain for me, like I said, was in the journey to the build-up. I hurt in the lead-up to that day. So that day, I remember from, it was, it would have been about two weeks out. I was like, all right, I'm ready. Like physically, I can't get any fitter in these two weeks. I am just excited. And so I, I guess I changed that thought process to be, to seek that pleasure. It was mm-hmm. like, all right, I've, I've avoided the pain. I know I'm going to avoid the pain because I've done the hard work. Now I can just Your go. legs weren't really hurting and stuff while I, you were doing it? I swear to God, they didn't hurt. I nearly crammed. Wow. I nearly crammed at about 92 Ks in, coming down a hill like my hemis in the front of my quads were starting to lock up. And I'm like, you have not run this far, no pain, and you're mm. going to cramp and that's the end of you. Um, and then I yeah, got well. to... I got to about 94, 95 Ks and I was, I blacked out, had to sit down and had a gel and a water, which I think was my brain just like. I need some sugar. Yeah, it's corking yeah. in here. We're, we're working on overdrive to probably mask everything out. That's um, exactly what it's doing, yeah. And yeah, I think even to that point of finding the path of least resistance, we just, I, I knew that, I knew how to run a comfortable pace because I put in the work training long distance. Um, I ran with Tommy for sections that were hard and we trained together. Um, so all those things that you speak about there, when I break it down into that run, like, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have pain on that day because I avoided it from putting myself through pain prior. Putting yourself to work. Yeah. Put so what, what you, what you basically did is you made the, you redid the pathways in your brain. So instead of feeling pain and concentrated on that, you concentrated on the bigger picture. And that's a really cool thing to do in any habit change that you have, that if you can, if you can take away from whatever's making you stop and look at what, what is the bigger, better offer here 
And the bigger, better offer for you was I'm going to run 100Ks. I'm the type of person that runs 100Ks. Yeah. I'm the type of person that doesn't give up. All of those things were your bigger, better offer. And again, it goes back to when you know your why and when you know what you're about, then you can kind of handle anyhow. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, and I, that's where my big message comes across in knowing your why is when you know your why, you know your motivation, which means the how doesn't matter. Yeah. Um, yeah it's a really good point. That I, well, and that's sort of how I'm, I'm sorry. I keep slotting back. I, I do a lot of podcasts where I'm the host, and I keep slotting back into host mode. Sorry about that. So, <laughs> <laughs> I was like, mm, the audience is going to get a good insight on me today. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I keep slotting into host uh, mode. And um, here I was worried about asking uh, you I, questions, I, and here I'm just firing away answers. Um, look, yeah, I, I forgot I'm the guest. Yeah, yeah, you're the guest here today, buddy. Sit back and just tell your story. Um, which I will get you to do. I think we always we always like to dive in and get to know a bit of the history of our guests. And um, I know yours is certainly quite an interesting one. It wasn't atypical, but it certainly wasn't typical. And then what sort of led you into your career path and then greatly into, I guess, great success with business and and now into what you're doing with your stress Teflon, you're, you're an author, um, optometrist and at a period of, in your life, you were the owner and operator of Australia's biggest optometry. So, can you? Uh, yeah, it's yeah. Talk us through through Lukey Mather's life. And- um, yeah, I was I was that kid. I was that little kid that um, you know always got the the coaches award at at like football and cricket and stuff. I was always shit ass at everything. I have zero natural talent for just about anything. I was a sport mad, sport, crazy sport mad kid, but always had to work so much harder than everyone else just to get to average. Right. And I was never really bad, but I had to work way harder than everyone else. And um, I think I was always, I was just that kid that had to try harder. I couldn't read until about grade nine. My eyes go in funny directions when I look to the right. So words would get all confusing. So I didn't read my first book till grade nine, which is quite weird now because I, I do a podcast called Your Next Read, which is, you know, which is funded by a, by a publishing agent. I write books and I read ferociously now, but up until grade nine, I couldn't read. So I almost had this little thing in the back of my head that I had these really smart sisters and here comes dumb little Luke, you know, dumb little Luke comes along. But I kind of, I had a teacher round about then that um, was a maths teacher and he actually worked out that I was really good at maths. I just couldn't read. So I'm the same. It, it, yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, um, there's a lot of people out there that are dyslexic and, and, and you know, I'm not dyslexic, but they kind of look into it as like, those school things are the things that measure how smart you are. And it's just so wrong. I think schools at the moment are, and they have been for years, are perfectly preparing us for a world that doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, and and so in, in that sense, that that opinion of myself was probably that little bit struggling and got to uni and just went, oh, wow, this is great. And I, I was the kind of glue guy. I was the one that organised all the parties. I was the guy that pulled everyone together and just always have been. It's, that's kind of the ABCs of me. And when I actually became an optometrist and, and ended up moving to the UK a couple of times in my, in my 20s and took over a spec service practice over there that was a dog with fleas. It was terrible. It was you know, hemorrhaging money. Their systems were awful. Their staff were not motivated. They were terrible. And I worked there as a locum for a couple of days. And um, 
I found out that the guys were trying that were wanting to sell it and they were selling it for two thirds of bugger all because it wasn't making any money. And I ended up um, using some pretty good negotiation skills and got the head office of Specsavers to, to give me that practice. I just had to take on the overdraft. And the overdraft was like 65,000 pounds. So it's probably a bit over $100,000. This is back in late 90s. And we paid that off in about three months. So I just changed the system. I motivated the staff. I, I made their jobs easier so that they could make more money and bring more people in. I worked my ass off. I worked, you know, 12-hour days and, and got, got it into a practice that I could feel really proud of. And we stayed there for, for probably three or four years. And by the end, the English uh, weather kind of got the better of me and uh, I had to come home. So I came, I came home and at 31, uh, I retired. I kind of sold up when the Aussie dollar was really low, was massively coined up, paid cash for houses. You know, this is exactly what everyone wants, you bet. I'm retired and I'm 31 years old. Well done me. Sounds good. Does that sound good? Yeah. I'm sure some of your listeners are thinking, wow, that'd be awesome to be all cashed up and you could retire at 31. I was a miserable bastard after about six months. Just because I didn't have any pride from contribution. I didn't have the safety of a tribe that I was actually helping lead. I'd been a leader my whole life and I didn't have that. I didn't have that sort of ability to do that. So I wasn't feeling great about myself. And if you hang your self-worth on, on how well you can, you can surf or hold three-foot parts, your self-worth is pre- fairly precarious. And I was doing that and wondered why I wasn't happy. So I ended up opening my own practice. Then Specsavers came and um, I went around the country signing up people for Specsavers because I, I was their Australian person that sort of stood up and said, yeah, I've done this in the UK. These guys are all right. And so we went around the country. We opened, If you've ever opened a retail store, you've done it with evocative with your shirts. But if you've opened a retail store, we opened 100 stores in 100 days. And there was a really big team and there were some fairly deep pockets and there was a lot of people, a lot of moving parts. But to be one of those moving parts in that big machine was just an amazing experience. It was so much fun. And um, ended up having... One, one of the new practices was mine and turned it into the biggest store in the country. And, you know, back when we, when Specsavers started, the best optometry store in the country probably did about a million and a half. When I sold out of that, a million and a half in turnover a year, when I sold that, that shop, we were doing over seven. And there's ones now that are, you know, probably tens and twelves. So, yeah, it was amazing that, all of, you talked about glass ceilings before and, and Specsavers coming in, biggest retail rollout in Australia's history, 100 stores in 100 days, and they, they now have something like just under 50% of the market share and from zero, you know, 12 years ago. So that was, that was a great journey to be part of. But if you've ever um, had your eyes tested, you know, which one's clearer, this one or that one, I've asked that nine and a half million times. All right, so if anyone out there listening thinks that their their job can get a little bit monotonous, asking the same question or variants of the same question nine and a half million times, it's a little bit monotonous. And part of that was, part of that when I looked around, you know, a few years after Specs have been going, I looked at some places were going really well and some places weren't. And I tried to work out what the difference was. And the difference was the leaders in the places that were going well were very good at stress. They could handle it when it got busy. They could handle it when they were onto the pump. And they didn't look at stress as being a bad thing. They looked at it as a challenge and something to fire up. And the difference between a good leader and a bad leader is how well you can deal with stress. 
how agile you are when things get bad, you know, how, how resilient you are, how, how consistent you are. I have a thing called a care model in, in leadership and a care, the care model is CARE and it's consistent, agile, robust and empathetic. And if you can have a leader that's all of those four and they care, then you're going to have a leader that's going to be stressed Teflon and that the stress isn't going to stick to them and they're going to fire up to whatever challenge comes their way and they're going to have a successful business. You think of any of those, if you're missing any one of those, you're leaving a very big void in your, in your capabilities. Yeah. I think I love that last word you used in the care factor there, which is empathy, which is a, a massive thing that we're, I guess, focusing on. So it's one of our three pillars here at Evocative and to sort of build mental fitness and mental toughness. And I think in that word there, empathy and toughness, they don't ever really go hand in hand, right? But I think in the in a new evolving world. Well, they and, can do. Well, yeah, they, they, yeah they, I think they certainly, sh- I believe they certainly should. Would you be able to just stipulate a little bit more on on your relationship with empathy and how you use that in business? Yeah, it was funnily enough when I was draw when I was drawing up that model, I was trying to find out well what are the what are the three things, and I love being able to create a model that that you can remember. All right, and you you you'll be able to go away and say, oh, it was a care model. It was consistent, agile, robust, and empathetic. You can rattle it off pretty easily. And I remember watching The Last Dance. I don't know if you watched that, the Michael Jordan documentary. No, no. I haven't. It was a documentary that was basically 20 years ago when, when the Chicago Bulls won their last of their six um, NBA titles. And Michael Jordan was the greatest basketball player in the world. And the whole thing was about him. And I looked at his leadership style and he was ridiculously consistent. He would just turn up and play well every single time. He was really agile. There were times when when the you know Detroit Pistons pushed him around and he said, nah, bugger this, I'm going to the gym. And he just, he beefed on about 10, 15 kilos and then they couldn't push him around anymore. He was robust from that, from doing that. But I looked at Jordan and I asked the question, was he a good leader or not? And I don't think he was because he didn't have the empathy. All right. The reason Jordan was on such winning teams, there's a few reasons which I can go into a little bit more in a tick, but he got away with it because he's a unicorn, right? We can't get away without empathies because we're not unicorns, all right? So he had a, a detrimental effect on a lot of the players he had there. He had a lot of really good, good effects on them. But if we go back to that safety of a tribe, they were really lucky in that Chicago Bulls team that they also had Phil Jackson, who was their coach. And he was, they called him the Zen master. So he, was, he really understood you know, Buddhism and he understood Taoism and a lot of that sort of stuff. And what he did is he got someone that was really off the charts, really high in empathy, a guy called Bill Cartwright. He was the centre in those first three Chicago Bulls premiership winning teams. And he made him a co-captain. So he made him a co-captain of the team. So you had Jordan, who was consistent, agile, and robust, and then in came Bill Cartwright, who was oozing with empathy. And between the two of them, they had the care factor. And I think that's something that businesses and stuff have got to realise that other people are going to think differently to me, but what, what of my gaps are they filling up? And I've got to appreciate that rather than saying they're thinking differently to me, I don't like it. They've got to look at it and literally search out people who have the opposite way to looking at them and embrace the fact that they're different. And that's another thing that's going to be make you stress Teflon as well. If you can actually embrace those differences that other people bring to the table, 
um, you're going to create a, a culture that's actually going to have some diversity in it, have some different levels of opinion. And you can have conflict when you have that so long as there's respect on what the other person brings to the table. Curious humility, you'd nearly say. Yeah, it's a great line, that, isn't it? The, the yeah. two words that, that really do go together beautifully. That, that I, I can I can get curious about what my gaps are and work out where other people can 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 fill them. I had a, a manager for the all of the years that I was with Specsavers in Australia, and she could dot an I and cross a T like any person you've ever you've ever met. And you know, I don't. I'm terrible at both dotting I's and crossing T's. I'm Almost awful same. at it. <laughs> right. But what the beauty of of Sonia and I working together and we worked together in, in the best practice in the country for years. And we were, we were an amazing team is I fully appreciated that she was going to think differently. And I respected her enormously for thinking differently and made sure I, I gave her permission to push back and, and let me have it when I needed to let have it. And I did the same with her and we both respected the fact that the other one was different to us. And you have a think about it, how many people in your life who kind of piss you off, and they're normally pissing you off because they're very much the same as you or very different. But if you can actually stop and get a bit curious and being grateful for their differences, um, I actually think you have a lot less conflict and you'll actually do a lot better in a business sense. And I think it, it allows you to learn a lot more as well. I, I, me and Kyle are very different. We're, we're, we're very similar, but with polar opposite personalities i believe no you you guys are very very opposite you've got yeah. similar outlooks but you've got completely different personality profiles and person and skills and and stuff like that he's much more structured and mm. and and works things out whereas you're just hey it's shiny thing syndrome and off you go you're like Man. <laughs> yeah uh, hey look a squirrel yeah, <laughs> um, well and off i go whereas kyle, kyle will, will make a plan and work his plan Hundred mm, percent. Whereas and you're going to be more, you're going to be more, you know, shiny thing syndrome. Yeah, and I think in in me navigating through that curious humility and through that skill set, it, and it's only really come recently through reading. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Adam Grant and his book Think. Yeah, I love Adam Grant. Yeah, yeah, Think Again was great. Given Given Take was a great book. Originals was good as well. Um, yeah, I'm a, man, I'm, a, I'm a little man crush on Adam Grant. I love him. Think oh. Again was probably one of the best books I've ever read, I think. Well, his, his, insights in, his insights into conflict in that were, were game changers as far as businesses go, that you and I can have conflict about a task and if we have a conflict about whether this is a good microphone or not, Mm. We could all argue all day long about whether this is a good microphone or not. And if we're having a conversation about them, I probably should leave it down so you can hear yeah. me. Um, but we can argue all day long about which is the better conversation. You might actually come up with a reason why another microphone's better and I might actually go and get a new one. And that's all cool. But if it turns into this is my microphone, that's your microphone, bugger off. Yeah, Blake's an idiot then it's turned into Blake's an idiot and it's become relationship conflict and that doesn't work in businesses. Yeah. So to be able to, whether it's in your family or whether it's in relationships or whatever, once it turns into conflict about that person, conflict goes south and stress sticks. When it stays conflict about a thing, the stress is okay because it's going to go, it's going to be about the thing and then it's going to slide off. Mm. Yeah, let's have a whiz-bang argument about that and then we're going to go and have a beer and have a chat and it's all good. 
And Adam Grant's inside of that, uh, you know, just that take out of that book, I think are worth, you know, worth the price of admission alone because it's a great book. Great book. And I've, even in my communication with people now, I've totally changed how I articulate messages and my certain beliefs. I'm like, well, I actually believe this, but I'm open to your opinion or open to a different side of the story because I only know so much. And it's really, yeah. it's helping me. It's curious humility. And well, it's out of the book as well. As soon as you said it, I was like, that's exactly what it is. Um, yeah, it really is. It really, yeah. That's but that that book, there's a, there's a whole you know if you if you pick oh, up any yeah. book and you can take two or three sentences out of it that are going to stick with you forever, it's a great book. Mm. You know, plenty of them you don't get even that. But the, he has a chapter in there about debating, and he talked about yeah. world champion debaters and all this sort of stuff. And one of the things, and Chris Foss talks about this too in Never Split the Difference, mm-hmm. that if we always start a debate from our common ground. If we start up from you and I both agree with this and this, am I right? Yeah, we are. Are you, th- are you thinking X, Y, and Z? And the person will go, yeah, well, I think A, B, C. And let's let's have a debate about that. So we've started with common ground. We're started in the same in the same team. Let's ha- let's have a debate and let's come up with the best way of thinking. And Adam Grant has a lovely, a lovely quote as well. He says, I respect your opinion so much I want to change it. <laughs> and um yeah. I really like that too, but but he he's someone who's and these these guys who are super smart in their field like he is, yeah. you know if you can come at if you can come at them and say I you know I disagree with you on this and this is why and this is a better way of thinking you're gonna think again like Adam Grant says and and those smartest people will actually change you can think of that as being a a flip flopper and someone who doesn't stick to their guns but if someone presents me with a better idea and tells me I'm wrong and says this is why. Fuck, Merry Christmas! I'm all over it. And here's and here's some evidence. And you know, the, the, yeah, let's let's explore why you uh, think you're correct. But I'm, mm-hmm. I'm I respect that so much that I want to change it with my evidence that I've gathered over time. Let's have yeah. and even ask permi- ask ask permission. Can you know? Can I push back on you on that? Even that one little sentence. Mm. Yeah. Can I push back on you on that, Blake? I, I get where you're coming for this, but I don't believe it's that. I believe it might be this. Mm. Can you see where that conversation mm. can actually stay as about, about the task and about the thing? It can be about the microphone or about whatever it is. And we can have a great discussion on it where both of us are actually going to come out a little bit smarter by understanding more of the other person's point of view. The hassle with most conflicts turn in, and particularly as we get more stress, as your stress levels get really high, what actually happens is it turns into I'm right, you're wrong, fuck off. Yeah. And if you look at if you look at the state of the way people talk in America and stuff now, they're so divided, they're so polarized. Mm. And it's turned into I'm right, you're wrong, bugger off. And and you don't have discourse anymore. You don't be able to have you can't have good debates that actually, you know, come up with the best responses because everyone's so polarized. And you forget that whole middle ground between the, because, and they, but the thing is they only talk about the polar opposites, the yes and the no, the North Pole, South Pole situations. Like, yes, climate change is real. No, it doesn't even exist, but they forget about the seven things in the middle. You know? Yeah. And which well, is, it's a really, it's a, it's a, can of worms to bring up about climate change because the hassle is with we 
our, the part of our brain that does that, our prefrontal cortex, is, a, is basically a simulation machine. It runs pros and cons things going all the time. You know, would I like to leave, eat liver and onion ice cream? No, I don't. Let's not do that. So it runs these little scenarios all the time. And one of the hassles that it gets, particularly with a, and um, Daniel Kahneman, who's a behavioral psychologist, um, described climate change as the perfect storm of things that humans haven't got the ability to deal with in their brains. That everything's, everything's abstract, everything's a long way away, nothing sort of, you know, I didn't drive my car today and the, and the, ocean, the oceans are cleaner. You know, that doesn't work. Everything's a long-term thing and we're, we're not very good at doing that. Yeah. Um, but climate change, one of the things that happens with that is that we give the same amount of weight to the people who are, have spent years studying it and know exactly what, what it should be and Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Both of those get the same amount of weight in the climate change debate. Mm. Donald Trump is completely ignorant of the whole thing. The scientist that knows the science of it knows the science of it. Yeah. So we look at our brains tend to look at those as being, you know, they're just two arguments. One of them's coming from a source that's well-researched, understands it and is based in logic and facts. The other one is based in emotions and shit that they've made up. <laughs> and, and humans tend to sort of weigh those things up and our brains are, that's why it's a perfect storm of things we can't deal with. We weigh those two things up as they're the same and they're not. Yeah. Yeah. I've, yeah. Well, we could really dive into the climate change things. I mean, I used to work in the mining industry and was oblivious to everyone else's opinion on it and the scientific proof. And I think that's nah, just part of the natural course of ice age and that sort of stuff. And I even heard the other day, and it might have been, might have even been in Adam's book, it was that ice age was happening, but our impact on climate change is actually counteracting that ice age process. And that's what's so scary. Yeah, there's a whole there's a whole bunch of things like it's it, yeah. climate change is, isn't a theory. It's a bit like evolution. It's a thing, all right. And, and it's we don't know exactly what. And that's why it's the perfect storm of of something that human brains aren't very good at dealing with because we don't exactly know what the end results are going to be. We have got some testing and we have got some theories and some models, but we don't really know. And we can't at the moment yeah could you imagine if eating a chocolate bar you look down and all of a sudden your pants didn't fit <laughs> yeah i mean you wouldn't eat chocolate bars there yeah all right but because we do those things and yeah we should exercise but you know i don't get an instant gratification out of it we've got to work out a way to get that to make sure that you change your habits <laughs> so there's there's a whole bunch of things with that that we're we're designed we've we've evolved in a in a environment that was all about instant you know i run away from a tiger i get away you bet i found something to eat i ate it and now that we we're having to live in an environment where we're living for 80 and 90 years and we're having to plan way more for things in the future that that instant gratification which we're biologically designed to take more notice of isn't helping us anymore hey guys i thought i would just jump in here quickly to promote last week's episode with Jansen Andre. So Jansen is actually running 160 kilometers on September 25th for Make A Wish Foundation. So what Evocative have done, we have teamed up with Jansen to help support him on that journey and help him raise some much, much needed funds for the children that are unfortunately 
not able to live their dreams, right? So Jansen's event is the freedom for future children. And if you jump on the evocative website and purchase any shirt, we are going to donate $15. But what's in it for you is not only the feeling of helping these children through your purchase, you are also going to receive 15% off your total cart value. So if you use the promotional code JANS100, J-A-N-S-100, you will be getting that 15% off and also with every shirt you purchase. So if you purchase three shirts, you'll get 15% off that total price, but we will also donate $15 from each shirt, so $45. So thank you for listening, thank you for contributing, and thank you for supporting Jan's and his 160 kilometer run for Make-A-Wish Foundation. But let's jump straight back into this episode with the incredible Luke Mathers. Yeah, the bloody climate change issue. I don't think we'll get to the bottom of that today. But (laughs) one thing I did want to get to the bottom of is, well, start the conversation, I suppose. And I mean, in our lifetime, I'd love to get to the bottom of it. But it's mental health. And um, I know you've had a pretty interesting and certainly your your very own struggles with mental health and um even in doing some research for this uh project this episode i did notice that from your adversities you actually are now a qualified mental health first aid instructor um which i'm going to call yeah, it because, because i actually want to know where you got it done because i was talking to someone about it the other day because i'm really interested in doing it but yeah, talk to mm-hmm. us about your mental health and how you navigated through life with that. Oh, my mental health has been really good for my entire life. It's it's actually been all of that's been fine. I went through a little I I put it I went through a little stage where I was a bit agitated. My marriage was on the rocks at the time. It's come good since. This is in my before I went to England the second time. So I was in my sort of late 20s. And I was smoking way too much pot. You talk about, you know, avoid pain. I want to avoid all of these other things in my life that aren't going quite so well. I, you know, I, there's a thing called top of the mountain syndrome. I think I made it up, but I call it top of the mountain syndrome where you look at the thing that I really want to get achieve this goal. And when I achieve this goal, everything's going to be awesome. I did that in a business sense. I did that a lot and got to the top of the mountain. And every single time I got to the top of the mountain, the view wasn't as good as I thought it would have been. And it didn't have that. Wow. I'm so glad I did this. And I kind of had done that in the, in the job I was in, I got the best job I could have possibly got in that sort of situation. And, you know, wasn't being a very good husband. And so I was getting the repercussions of that and ended up smoking way too much pot and had a thing called a hypermanic episode. And I'll give you the really short version of it is that my, basically my brain went into fifth gear and didn't come out for about two weeks. Uh, I lost about 12 kilos in weight. I was just basically running on treadmills and writing business plans all the time. Um, my brain was just, you know, that, that whole you only use 20% of your brain isn't true. You use your whole brain. But it all switched on and it stayed switched on for about two weeks. And to me, it was great. I was having a ball. It was like, yeah, it was 
off I go and it was all wonderful. But um, the people I was working with knew that I had to slow down or something wrong and they called in, called in the experts from a, a mental health facility and they basically said to me, you can either come with us or we're going to give you a jacket that buckles up at the back and you're going to come with us. So they were my two choices. And they, they, took, they took me to a mental health hospital. They put me in a padded room, drugged me out, and I slept for three days or two days. And um, even after that, I was still, you know, a hypermanic episode is basically you're not psychotic, but you're getting really close. So you, you haven't lost grasp of a reality, but the reality is getting a bit tenuous. Yeah. And so I ended up spending a week in a, in a mental health hospital and the only way I got to come out because the, the doctor said, look, you're bipolar. And I'm like, well, I've never been depressed, so I disagree with your diagnosis because I was you know, still a bit. And he would basically say every time I saw him, he'd say, you know, yeah, you're still a bit high, you can't come home yet. So on about day six, I just acted depressed and they let me go home the next day. That's fun. so it was uh it was a real that was a really strange you know it still wasn't well when I got home and it took a while but that was that kind of that kind of blip in the road that made me go back you know assess what I'm doing I went back to the UK we were broke because we were partying too much I was earning heaps of money but just spending it all and partying too much mm-hmm. we ended up going to the UK and starting the business and you know three or four years later I was that 31 year old guy that you know had made enough money to retire and the world was at my feet, but that wouldn't have happened had I not had the mental health episode wake me up. Mm. And, you know, fortunately I've never had another one of them again. Um, But having gone through something in that mental health road just has made me always pretty curious about it. And it's actually why I read so many books about things like psychology and neurobiology and all of that sort of stuff. I, I just love understanding how we tick. And um, I brought that into the, and the stuff that I do with stress Teflon and the stuff that I do with other things actually fits really well into mental health first aid courses. So um, yeah, they're, re- they're a really good thing to do. If you ever get a chance, you can actually just get on mental health first aid's website, just type mm-hmm. in mental health first aid into Google. Um, they have them all over the place. Um, they, yeah. they, yeah, people do them all over the place. So when you, I'll, next time you're back here, I'll make sure I run one when you're yeah, around. Well, and you that would be, that. I'll be, hopefully back in october so that would be i know there's a few people that i'm associated with that would love to get involved so that'd be great yeah we can um yeah we would run them at miami surf club so it's a really good venue um you actually yeah i i do them i do all the things you have to do for mental health first aid but i throw in all the other stuff as well so um yeah i I love doing that sort of stuff it's just you can't have more fun for me than doing that yeah let's lock that in and um yeah, we'll, we'll we'll lock some dates in and we'll um, get some people to come down to it. But you mentioned there. I think one, a- one of the things about it, just just that one last little bit on that, yeah. is if you broke your leg, you put a plaster on, you do what you have to do to do your rehab and your leg gets fixed and you're all okay, all right? There's a lot of people that have a mental health episode and it doesn't mean that their mental health is going to be terrible forever. And I think if anyone listening that's having a bit of a struggle with mental health that it's not always forever, but you've got to put the plaster on and you've got to do the work to help yourself get better. And mental health, like a whole bunch of other things, there are, there are things that you can help. There are things that you can do to, to get yourself back on track. And it, I think one of the problems when you have a mental health episode, we start to define, use that to sort of define ourselves a bit. And I think that's a really slippery slope that, you know, I had a mental health episode. Yeah, I did, but I've come out of it and I came out of it bigger and better. And I think a lot of other people can do the same that you can, 
even if it's something like depression and anxiety, particularly I've written and my new book that's just about to come out soon is called reset. And it's, it's about teenage anxiety and to be able to just give them some tools to sort of say, yeah, it's okay that I feel shit like that. I can get comfortable with the discomfort of feeling anxious rather than, and, and having something like anxiety, you know, that if you got anxious about something, what feeling do you get? Like, um, it's funny you ask me that because for many, many years, I was oblivious to anxiety and stress I, to the point where I was. I didn't, I'm asking the wrong dude, aren't I? You're asking the wrong dude. I didn't believe in it because I didn't, <laughs> I didn't have those feelings. And through, yeah. uh, I was only talking about this probably two or three hours ago, through being in evocative, the space of mental health now and learning about all these things so I can try and articulate and understand and resonate with people is to understand what these feelings and emotions actually might be. And yeah. Well, you get, oh, yeah, you, get you definitely ask that, the wrong person. Um, yeah. I'd, I'd be well, what, what other people that. end up doing is they end up feeling these feelings of anxiety and anxiety is there. The, the caveman that walked out of his cave and never got anxious, got eaten. Yeah. All right. Yeah. If you were living on the Serengeti 10,000 years ago, you'd be dead as fuck. <laughs> right because you wouldn't have been you wouldn't have got worried about anything you would have been so chilled you would have just gone yeah that's all right and you wouldn't have noticed the rustle in the bush that the tiger jumped out and ate you well that's right? what so I've you learned. wouldn't have con- yeah that's what i've learned luke is that it's actually a natural reaction to danger yeah like, yeah it, it is yeah and i actually so yeah i'd like to turn it around a little bit and uh, there's a um, a psychologist from Harvard called Susan David, she wrote a great book called Emotional Agility. Mm-hmm. And she talks about anxiety as being a signpost. And it's a signpost that makes you pay attention. So, you know, that, that one of the things we talk about it in our new book is, is catch, wait and reset and catch the physical feelings of feeling anxious. All right, that knots in your stomach. I, I ask this a lot when I do when I do stress reset programs. What's the physical thing that says something's happening that I'm stressed? Some people clench their jaw. Other people get knots in their stomach. We had one guy who's a big bald bloke, and he said, "Yeah, I know when I'm stressed because I sweat through my head." <laughs> and it was <laughs> like everyone has a different sort of cue that says I'm stressed. Mm. And one of the problems is that we look look at those cues and then we go straight away into, oh, my God, this must be bad, and we make a catastrophe sort of plot line in our heads. And I think we can get that a lot better if we just get curious and sort of say, okay, I've got knots in my stomach. And catch, wait, and reset. The wait is what am I thinking, W-A-I-T, all right? And when we stop and feel that anxiety and just feel it, don't make it part of you, just feel it and say, okay, well, what am I thinking? Why am I thinking it? Is it helping? That can actually help you reset what's going on and sort of work out what's what's happening in your brain. So to understand the biology of stuff like that and not just turn it into, yeah, you would have heard people saying, oh, yeah, I have anxiety. Mm. You know what I mean? Um, I hate it when people talk like that as, the, as in a feeling becomes part of their identity and it's just... You've got to catch yourself if, you, if you're talking like that because it's not doing you any favours. Yeah. Like if, instead of saying have anxiety, just throw a couple of words in there because remember anxiety is a signpost to something, mm. all right? So if we can just say, okay, I'm feeling anxious about and investigate why you're feeling anxious about it rather than making it I am an anxious person. It's a bit like going back to that conflict and and that conflict, is it a task conflict or is it a, a personality? One of them you're turning in the feeling of feeling anxious 
is a thing rather than a part of your identity. And yeah. I think that's a really important thing that people have got to tweak the way, particularly with kids, we use that, you know, my daughter struggles with anxiety. No, she doesn't. You know, you wouldn't say my son struggles with being hungry. Hmm. You know what I mean? Hungry is just a feeling. It's hungry. Hmm. You know, anxiety is just a feeling. It's anxiety. You know what I mean? But we've got to we've got to stop turning it into a personality trait as in like, you know, my name's Blake and I'm six foot one and I've got brown hair and I have anxiety. It's, it's not, it's not what it is. It's a signpost that, that I've got to pay attention to something and we're not paying attention to those things where we're tying it up in an, into an identity that, that isn't doing our mental health any favors. And then I've, I've probably got to mitigate that a little bit. There are people that have anxiety disorders that it's a, a clinical thing and they can't stop it and there's you know that that's different but that's such a poof of the the people that are having those problems i think so um, you know just be really where our language is so important just be really wary of am i am i turning myself into a am i defining myself by a feeling now you'd never say if you say you just got out of the you know you're down in down south a little bit and the water would cold you wouldn't get out of the out of the cold ocean and then go oh gee I'm such a cold person you'd say no I'm cold mm. and I think we've got to use things like anxiety and and stuff like that in the same way I'm feeling anxious at the moment yeah I know Dad used to be like hey I'm hungry oh nice to meet you hungry I'm Howard <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah okay like, like it, it's yeah. not, it doesn't define who you are. Um, no, it doesn't. And I think we, we do that a little bit with mental health and I think we need to be really wary of it. Yeah, I really like how you've, how you've put that because I think it makes me back to my education on this anxiety and um, those sort of feelings is they are a feeling and they're a natural feeling. So process it as a feeling, which I think I yeah. what I'd done subconsciously it just decided because I didn't use that word anxious because I only, had only heard it in the context of, I have anxiety. So that's yes. why I was like, oh, I don't feel anxious because I don't have what you have. <laughs> um, yeah, exactly. But you do feel anxious sometimes. Yeah, well, now yeah, that I'm yeah, even, even just it. like you step you step out on the road and a bus goes past and you get that knots in your stomach. Mm. That fight or flight kicks in. That's exactly the same as anxiety. And it's there to make before, you pay attention. Yeah, I was anxious anxious before coming on here, like making sure everything's set up and a little stress factors in, involved of making sure everything's going to record, making the lights are on and stuff like that. Um, with, I guess, on that anxiety, and you talked about you've got to try and change your mindset around that. How do we get people into that space where they are open to that change, where they're, where they're open to think again or think outside the box or look at different perspectives and, yeah, really just become open to change, to change who they are in those thought processes? Yeah, it's a really, really good question. Um, it's there's a couple of there's a couple of short there's a short answer and a long one to that. Um, I think I think the short one to it is to just always be able to have at least two options. Um, one, one of the one of the things a lot is that we we have a default option that the thing that you know we talked about our our habits and stuff before, and we have a default way that we go, and we can think about that a certain way and that's just the, the way that we go without thinking about it and then we can have a decision way that we go and so everywhere we go there's a, a little fork in the road 
and we can either take the well-worn path that we've always done, even if sometimes if it's not serving us and if it's not serving us to stop and have a look and say, okay, next time I come to that fork in the road, I'm going to go a different way. And when we do that, we get much better at changing habits. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a brilliant one. I made a little video the other day on making habits and I just, just about finished um, 75 hard. I don't know if you've heard that by Anthony. I have, yeah, I have heard yeah. of people doing that. It, it sounds like a really cool thing to do. I haven't done it, but oh, well, it sounds I'm really day, cool. Day 71 or 72 or some of that, I'm, I'm pretty much done it. Um, and the ha- right. one of the biggest traits that I've picked up in the habits is um, reading trying to get yeah just that taking that time to put everything aside and change i guess my perception or even just myself in the ability to read being coming a i wouldn't say a reader but you know doing doing the activity of reading. if you're reading for 71 days in a row you're a reader yeah you, well, you change your identity and, and embrace that embrace that yeah, and say, yes i am a reader well, i'm so proud of it because Prior yeah. to this, I'd probably read three books in my life, and in seventy days, I've read three books. And um, one of them's Think Again, which is amazing because that, that's that's again. such a good read. Yeah. Um, but I forgot where I was going to go with that. <laughs> um, well, you gave well, us a short answer on how do you become open to change. What's, yeah. Um, what's the long answer? The, the long answer is that, and if you look at something, um, we we I've just come back from a weekend where. Yeah, we're in Queensland, so we can still actually catch up with people, you know, live and stuff like that. And we've just had a thing called a primal reset. And we went away with 20 people and we basically, we went away with 20 people and in some part of their life, all of them just sort of felt like an agitation in some part of their life, that some part of their life wasn't working quite as good as they wanted to. They weren't failing, they weren't dismal, they weren't depressed, whatever. They just, they were stuck on some one little step in life and couldn't work out how to get onto the next one. And so we've gone away and we've used a framework that they've been using for thousands and thousands of years in indigenous, indigenous cultures all around the world. When they run a rites of passage course, what they do is, is, is particularly boys turning into men. They will leave their tribe. They'll go away. They'll go outside of their normal, normal place. So we take people away. And then they they share stories, they look at challenges, and then they get a vision of who they want to be. And then all of the elders that, that go away with them then reinforce that yes, you are that now. And, and then they come back into the into the tribe and they're recognized as not being boys anymore. They're recognizing as being men. And that's a kind of rites of passage thing. And I, one of the hassles that we have in modern society, and I learned this from a, a a fellow in northern New South Wales called Dr. Arna Rubenstein. And he was, a, he was a doctor and realised that so many of these boys were doing stupid things like car surfing and stuff like that to try and prove that they're grown up. And they were doing it because they didn't have a formal step from being a boy to being a man. Okay. And so he, he studied all of the frameworks from around the world and came up with the rites of passage courses that he's been running for 20-odd years now. Mm. And we used the framework that, that Arna taught me about how to do that and we got everyone into this they, they call it a liminal space where your brain's open to new ideas and by using that rites of passage framework we took people away for for three days and we took people away i call it an agitated squiggle and an agitated squiggle is that person that's stuck on a step and can't work out how to move to the next step 
Mm. And so we took, took away 20 people and we ran them through this and we taught them about stress. We taught them about some business stuff. We had a lot of stuff about self-awareness and that when you're in that safe place where you're accepted and you're part of a tribe, your brain does open up to new possibilities. And um, I've, I haven't enjoyed a three day more and every single person that came away with us has loved it. And the reason is that we got them into that space where their, their brains were open to change. And then we let them have the, have the space of how they wanted to change. So it wasn't us going in and telling them what to do. We just created the framework and then asked the questions and they decided where they were going to go. And all, you know, I've spoken to, quite a few of them in the last couple of days and they've all come home and they've had the conversation that they've been avoiding with their partner. They've gone into their business with a new vigor and a intent and the purpose of what they're going to do. And they've, they've got rid of those, you know, I call them useless thought habits. Those little habits about themselves that, that are defining themselves from a story that they're telling them that's not even true. It's not even theirs. It's probably implanted on them when they're a kid. And they've had all of these limiting beliefs that they've just been telling themselves for so many years that they've never thought to question it. And the, one of the beauties of what we did in the primal reset is we took them away and I got a little bit relentless on a few of them and said, "That's I'm calling bullshit on you and called bullshit on them from a place of love every time. Mm. And, yeah, the, it, was, it was raining penny drops. It was never one to mix metaphors, but it was, it really was. And it was a... It was an amazing, amazing three days and I'm really looking forward to running more of them. We'll, we're going to have another one in, in probably November sometime. But to be able to get people to get into a space where they can really change and then give them the tools to make the change that they want to make rather than us telling them what to do. And I know that you have that skill to be able to do that for people because I read down here agitated squiggle. Um because that, yeah, well, that, that's yeah. I think that was a, a point where myself and Kyle were at with Evocative, and we um we come and seen you. We were, we were traditionally we we're just a clothing label, and we we realised in a conversation with you that we actually give a shit. <laughs> um, yeah, we want it. We want and you can have, offer so more than just some pretty funky ass shirts. Yeah, and um, it was it was you gave us the space to think about it and to to take that process on and make that change um and yeah thank you that's a that's a lovely that's a lovely thing to say yeah I'm and so you, you got but you guys did the work i didn't i didn't tell you what to do you guys all did the work um mm. all i did was all i did was open your brain up and yeah when you when you open it up you get rid of those those stories you're telling yourself that haven't been serving you but you're keeping on telling it and those pathways are worn in there and it's it's kind of like if you want to build a new one, if you want to build a new road, you've got to you've got to do the work. You've got to get on the grader and you've got to, you know, build the new road. And you you guys were doing that. So Yeah. Um but it's it's, it's a really important thing. Mm, well, it, I just, yeah, it absolutely it's changed our whole trajectory of everything. Um so yeah, I'm so grateful for that. But I I guess my point with that was it friggin' works. Like if you if you can get yourself into that primal reset or allow your health self to have that primal reset or what do you call it a liminal space yeah liminal space is is have you heard of subliminal things before something yeah. being subliminal yeah what subliminal means is just a little bit underneath liminal and what they used to do they, there's some great stories about in the 60s and 70s is that movie theaters would when they had the old film projectors they would put a little coca-cola thing every 
20th frame. So a little Coca-Cola thing would come up, but you didn't actually see it, but your brain registered it. And all of a sudden you're really thirsty and want to drink Coca-Cola. And that, that's what subliminal messages are. They kind of plant seeds. When you're fully liminal, your brain is open to new experiences and your brain's seeing things that it's not. And one of the problems in living in such a stressful world where we're constantly on phones and we're constantly looking at screens and we're constantly only using our central vision that we only concentrate on that. And to be liminal, you have to kind of expand your horizons and look out to the side a little bit, which is one of the reasons why we do the primal reset in a place that's in the country. We do it out with, you know, trees and, and walks and all of that sort of stuff. We've got to start stimulating our peripheral retina. Um, we're only doing central stuff because we're buried in phones and computers too much. So to be able to get out into nature, that that's a beautiful thing to open up your mind to thinking new. Um, if you're ever, if you've ever got someone that you've got to have a conversation with that you is an uncomfortable conversation, do it walking in nature. Um, particularly blokes, we're way better at talking shoulder to shoulder than we are face to face. Yeah. So to be able to go for a walk and, and you'll open up a little bit more in that sort of situation. But um, liminal ba basically means your, your brain becomes open to new ideas. And um, it's, a, it's a really important thing to be able to work out how to get in that space and have a, a mentor who you trust and who has your best interests at heart, who can help you guide, guide you through that sort of stuff so that you can get the results that you need. Yeah, that's, yeah, well, I know how important it was and how important it is. I obviously hadn't put it in that perspective, but now that you've outlined it like that, it, it's, that's where we went to with you as a mentor. Um, we spoke a little bit earlier. I think you may have touched on it and, we ask all our guests this, but in coming to the end of this incredible episode, um, thank you so much for your time, Lukey. But what is one tip you would give our listeners in searching for their why? Um, I know you, it's a don't vomit in your mouth. <laughs> vomit in <laughs> don't, don't vomit in your mouth. But or something, I guess, to your um, expertise with stress and being the author of Stress Teflon and there's a few other books you got coming up um what is a tip i guess you you spoke about change you spoke about how to you know help yourself analyze a feeling opposed to a personality trait what's something that you might be able to give our listeners in, in a great value in finding their purpose more or less than their why uh, that's it with you it's a, it's a great way to put me on the spot at the end Blake, because it's a really hard question but one of the things we do in our workshops is we we do a thing called eye goals and eye goals are your infinite goals, all right? And, it, and your eye goals are a few things. They're intrinsic, so they're not about I want a big house and a nice car, mm -hmm. right? They're intentional. I deliberately want to be this sort of person. And they're identity-based, all right? Um, and if you get your eye goals right, you're, you're going to want to be that when you're 80 years old. Like my, my eye goals and they're, they're kind of, you can call them Dharma. You can call them, you can call them your, your values. If you want to, mm -hmm. I, I really like eye goals because it, it's something that I'm aspiring to be. And I think once you get your eye goals, right, then your why kind of takes care of itself a little bit. My eye goals are I'm curious, creative and generous. So if I'm being curious, about the world and learning new things. I'm happy as a pig in shit. If I'm being creative and particularly creative in ways I can help people in my 
in my coaching and in my workshops and stuff and generous in terms of I'm helping people. If I can be those three, I'm as happy as a pig and shit. And if we go back to, if we go back to the nine and a half million questions of being an optometrist, you know, there was a fair few years towards the end there that I didn't want to do it anymore. I'd had enough. I'd, I'd earned a good living. I got a big flash house and all of that sort of stuff was great, but I didn't want to do it anymore because it wasn't giving me any, any sort of mastery. I wasn't getting any better at it. But the moment I reframed it and went, well, how can I go into work? How can I go into my optometry practice being curious, creative and generous? The moment I did that, all of a sudden I found my why and I was okay because the things I was doing were in line with my values. And I think that's, that's what we've got to do. We've got to make sure that whatever we're doing and whatever the stories we're telling ourselves and whatever actions we're doing are all in line with what our values are. And if you're doing that, then you're living that congruent life where everything's going in the same direction. And when you do that, you'll, you'll have your why and you'll, you'll do the things that are congruent with who you want to be. That's perfect. So high goals. I love that. I, it's, I, it's funny you've said that and you read off three things and your three things. And then I've got a notification that pops up on my phone every eight hours that says three words, which are words that I think I am at my highest mm-hmm. version of myself, which is caring, motivating, and entertaining. So if I'm doing those three beautiful things, caring for people yeah. through connections or whatever it is and then being motivating so sharing my positivity and energy with people and then entertaining and you know through podcasts and social media and you know being a bit of a bit of a funny fella here and there and you know if if I'm doing those three things that's me at my highest form you're as happy as a pig and shit happy as so you don't and that I know I'm pushing back on you and giving you shit about you know find your why and all of that sort of stuff and that's okay because we're allowed to have we're allowed to have conflict. It's, it's about ways you look at things. But what you've just described there is, is your eye goals. You, you've done it. We have a process that we go through in the workshops. It's one of the problems. It's really hard to work that out. It's, a, it's almost like if you're inside the jar, it's hard to read what's on the outside of the jar. And we have a process that gets people out of their own life and just looks at the things that they admire. There's a, there's a line in Buddhism, it's called Buddha's delight. And Buddha's delight is noticing the good things about yourself in someone else and delighting in the discovery. You know, I love talking to you, Blake. You have this passion for talking to people and you have this beautiful way of wanting to, to entertain and help people and find their why. And I love the way you do that. And, and I'm kind of like that too. And that's Buddha's delight. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of recognizing yourself in others and delighting in the discovery. And what we do is we go through a whole bunch of people and work out and we have a whole list of character traits and then which ones stand out to that person. And we use them as our, as our eye goals. And that turns into, that turns into the characteristics of that. I'm getting a bit, a bit long winded here, but we then turn that into the characteristics of the alter ego and your alter ego is the best version of you. So my alter ego's name is Carlos. Long story, we won't do that now. But Carlos is curious. Carlos is curious, creative, and generous. And when when I'm in a mental quandary or what will I do here, I ask myself, what would Carlos do? And what can I do here that is curious, creative, and generous? And every single time, Carlos never lets me down. Oh, that is the most beautiful way to end because... 
how's the ironicness of that? Carlos is my band's name. Um, I love your band too. It's yeah. <laughs> and he's curious and he takes me places just fine. Um, Lukey, thank you so much, my man. It's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege to have you on the Evocative Project. Please quickly just share where people can find you, where like your workshops, they could find those things. Um, we'll put them all in the show notes, of course, but um, just, yeah, touch on those things quickly and your books. Yeah, we find the workshops at primal.com.au and it's PR. Funnily enough, it's primal with a Y. So I thought you'd like that. P-R-Y-M-A-L. <laughs> dot yeah. com dot au uh or you can go to lukemathers.com.au um luke mathers official on instagram and just go luke mathers on on linkedin and you'll find me there too beautiful mate uh yeah thank you so so much it's you know, i've got a page of notes here that i'll dissect and work through over the next couple of years of my life no doubt um and i'm sure all our guests will as well so thank you so much for your time mate and yeah all the best in the future and i can't wait to catch up with you soon Pleasure, Blake. It's been emotional. <laughs> oh, we have made it. Thank you so, so much for listening all the way through to the end of this incredible episode with Luke Mathers. I'm sure you're sitting there ready to pause me here and go right back to the start and fire up another learning session from Lukey. Now, I took I took three pages of notes on this, so I'm certain that you have sat down and taken in as nearly as much as what you can in listening to that project there. And... I would love it if you could throw a message or a comment below in this episode about some learnings that you've got out of it, or even on our social, send us a message or an email about some certain things that you learned from it. And certainly don't be shy to message Luke through his websites and platforms that you will also see in the show notes. Now, one little thing that he touched on right at the end there was the Buddha's delight, noticing the things that you like about yourself in someone else and then delighting in that discovery, which is something that I've I've never actually implemented. But I think in thinking about that, I reflect on, you know, people that I follow on social media and people that I surround myself with are all people that I really inspire to be like. And I think if we can look at people around us, are they inspiring us? Are they enriching our lives? Are they making us better people? Are we making better decisions when we're around these people? And I think if we can do that, look at our eye goals, then we can avoid that top of the mountain syndrome that Luke talks about in there, which is when you get to the top, when you've been searching and striving for achieving your goals and you think everything's going to be amazing. But then when you get there and it's not, then you got to ask yourself, what was I doing it for? And I think if we can align ourselves with our eye goals and we can, you know, figure out the type of person we want to be and how we want to feel every single day until we're 80, until we're 100 years old, I think we're really going to be valuable people in our community and that's all we can really want, right? So 
Thank you again for jumping on and certainly listening all this way through the Evocative Project. We are so grateful for your time. And in the show notes, you'll also find our recent uh, collaboration with Jans and his 100-mile run in just a couple of weeks now. So jump on there, buy a shirt. We're going to give you the $15 discount. All the details are in the show notes. And we're going to donate $15 to Jans as well. So thank you so, so much. And I cannot wait to dive into another incredible episode next week when we meet on The Evocative Project.